I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. On Tuesday, February 6th, 2024, during a first-of-its-kind trial, 45-year-old Jennifer Crumley was convicted of four counts of involuntary manslaughter for the school shooting carried out by her son, Ethan Crumbly. On November 30th, 2021, then 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly opened fire at Oxford High School in Michigan. His rampage wounded seven and killed four students. 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, 17-year-old Justin Schilling, 16-year-old Tate Meyer, and 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana. In December of 2023, 17-year-old Ethan Crumbly was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the attack. Prosecutors argued that his mother, Jennifer, ignored many warning signs and cries for help from her son that could have ultimately prevented the shooting from taking place, rising to the level of criminal culpability for involuntary manslaughter. This conviction has set a legal precedent for parental accountability. Jennifer Crumbly's sentencing will take place on April 9, 2024. Her husband, James, is being tried separately on the same charges. His trial begins in March. Marie Osborne is a senior news analyst with WJR Detroit, and she joins me now with a look at this landmark decision. You have followed this trial closely. Walk us through what was presented in court. Oh, there was... Uh... A lot of evidence here, 400 pieces of evidence, 21 witnesses, the defendant, the only person called for the defense. And there was 11 hours of deliberation here. So what was presented as evidence? Well, of course, this was all on the prosecutor's side. They had the burden of proof here. Prosecutors really provided a mountain of evidence throughout the trial. They provided textbook messages, Facebook messages, uh, both of the shooter and of Jennifer Crumley, the mother those messages. They showed surveillance footage of the day of the shooting, the actual shooting, to pictures inside the Crumley house. Uh, There was a lot of evidence, too, from journals that the shooter had kept. He talked about in those journals about his parents uh, not listening to him and his pleas for help to them. Uh, He also talked very explicitly in those journals about his desire to shoot up the school and how after that would be after he would do that, um, he would wait for the police to apprehend him so that he could watch uh, the mayhem unfold after that. Now, there was no evidence, Emily, that the mom knew about those journals that was uh, that came out in the trial. And of course, there was a lot of evidence about this gun. We saw pictures of uh, the shooter at the gun range with both of his parents. We saw we saw evidence of the defendant here, Jennifer Crumley, holding that gun. She was the last adult shown holding that gun. And that turned out to be an, a very key piece of evidence for the jury. And can we talk about sort of bird's eye view here? This was an incredibly novel case and decision by the jury. And the closest analog that I can come up with um, is the 2001 dog mauling case out of San Francisco, Marie, where dog owners were held criminally liable for murder for their dogs mauling and killing um, their neighbor. And at the time, the question, which it sort of was here, is at what point 
do we as a society hold criminally liable those that are in charge of something? And the, here, the hook for both of these is like that something that no, is known to be fatal or to have that possibility. And the Crumbly team here, or Jennifer Crumbly, because obviously her husband goes on trial in March, um, the defense team essentially argued, look, none of this was foreseeable, that despite all of these separate data points occurring where, you know, why didn't she immediately take her child home from school as everyone is sitting there and looking at this horrific note? Um, why, when the child is talking about demons in the home, you know, there was sort of like an explanation for every X, there was an O, um, but in its entirety, defense claimed, well, anyone would have missed this. Like this negligence at a maximum did not rise to the level of a foreseeability here. And the point is the jury felt differently. The jury, in fact, felt that it rose to the level of holding her culpable, criminally culpable for involuntary manslaughter. What are your thoughts as in all your experience? What are your thoughts on that as a society, as, as this decision has thus unfolded, setting precedence now? Well, listen, we've held parents accountable before for acts. And think about when a child is found, uh, finds a gun that is unsecured and shoots and kills another person, usually another child in many cases, um, the parents are held responsible for that. So think about that. If uh, your child, your teenager is drunk and you allow them to use your car, you are criminally responsible for that. So was the shooting a reasonable, foreseeable act? Did the parents employ ordinary care in this case? The legal, the legalese that was used uh, for involuntary, the two elements of involuntary manslaughter in Michigan, gross negligence or a failure to perform a legal duty. So in other words, would a reasonable person have put two and two together here and said, I think my son has um, a lot of issues that need to be dealt with. And also the issue of the gun. Would a reasonable person have given that child, that teenager, a gun? Also, a lot of questions surrounded the day that the parents were called to the school in the morning, the day of the shooting. They're in the office. We saw a lot of video of this in the trial as well. They're in the office with the one of the counselors and they never, the backpack is there where the gun is located, we later find out. And never during that chat with the school official did the parents say, oh, by the way, we bought our son a gun. And it looks a lot like the gun that he's drawn here on this piece of paper uh, that was really the reason he was brought down to the uh, office to begin with. So they never said that. And also, nor did they say, can we have five minutes with our son alone? And then asked him, okay, where's, where's that gun? Now, the defense claims in this case that Jennifer Crumley was not in charge of locking up the gun. The husband was, James Crumley. So that she really assumed all along that this gun was secured at the home. Well, of course, we find out later that it wasn't. In fact, the gun lock itself, you know, there's a combination on it. And uh, we had one of the uh, state police, I believe, testified, or one of the agents, the FBI agents testified, that the combination to that lock was zero, 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 zero. So we all know that, you know, that's the default setting or one that has never been set. So that's really important evidence to remember here. So in other words, in this case, the parents did not, in this case, Jennifer Crumley did not employ 
reasonable care or any kind of reasonable care and realizing that her son needed help. Right. And again, what's so fascinating about this legally is all of the the standards that you articulated, that's the negligence standards. And yeah. so what that means is we have held that the we've gone from civil culpability, what we've seen before, and misdemeanors in the criminal sector, what we've seen before, um, parents, to now a negligence standard that is so significant, that the negligence was so severe that it rose to the level not just of criminal culpability, but manslaughter within the murder rubric. Um, that is what is so fascinating and novel. And I will say that when you look at the facts of this case, if there is if there was a case that would have represented that cleanly, it is this one. And part of what stuck out to me was Jennifer's text uh, where when she heard about the shooting and she said, or maybe it was before that. You correct me on the timeline. But when she texted Ethan the, the morning of the shooting and said, Ethan, don't do it. And it was, that it was that. Yeah, yeah. so that imp- that sort of would indicate then there was a foreseeability in her mind. Because if she says don't right. do it, that means that she imagined him doing it. You know, it wasn't out of the blue. Now, how the defense explained that was that um, she was thinking he would take his own life. And so she was telling him don't do it. Um, and And also her husband raced home. We heard very, very gripping testimony of the 911 call that her husband made saying, um, I, I just came home. I think my son is involved in this shooting. I just came home and the gun, the gun is missing. So it, that, that testimony was very riveting in the courtroom. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. So let's talk about that testimony for a moment. So Ethan himself did not testify and part of it is because since his case is still um, winding its way through the appeal system, um, then it, he would have just pled the fifth the entire time. But Jennifer taking the stand in her own defense, that was quite remarkable. What, what were your thoughts on that and takeaways? Well, yeah, it was very remarkable. They didn't call any other witnesses, just her. And I, I've always curious as to how people saw that testimony. It's interesting to me because some people said that you know, she didn't do herself any favors. In fact, she did, in a sense, uh, she was caught in a lie on the stand saying that uh, the, uh, the night before the shooting, um, he was he got in trouble. And they she said, I, we took his rights to go to the to the shooting range. He couldn't go anymore. He was like grounded. They took his phone away and uh, they told him he had to stay in the house. Well, we know that that's that they didn't take the phone away from him because he went outside and uh, the shooter here in this case did sort, he recorded himself and this manifesto, if you will, about wanting to shoot up the school and what he was going to do. So he had the phone in his possession. So she was incorrect in saying that. Did she, you know, she, she did say on the stand, she did say, I wished he had turned the gun on us. And he, she also uh, articulated on the stand that how her their lives are over. And she said, though, qualified that by saying the lives of the families who had victims in this shooting, it doesn't compare to that. So she acknowledged the pain and suffering by the families in the, this case, which, by the way, were in the courtroom the entire time. And did the prosecution 
include any of their testimonies or their victims' statements that were read? Will that be part of the sentencing that will occur on April 9th? Usually victim impact statements read at that time. But how were the families involved during this trial? Well, they, you know, they were, they kept quiet. They watched intently. There was um, emotion that was shown several times. Um, they, there will be impact, uh, victim impact statements uh, at the sentencing on April 9th. But what's interesting, too, is that the one of the teachers who actually was shot that day testified. She was the first witness for the defense and also the assistant principal. But I won't forget that teacher who testified first because, you know, here we are uh, two years out from this uh, incident and she was shaking like a leaf. Uh, describing that day what happened to her and watching how Ethan Crumley came to the door, saw her, raised his gun, pointed it at her. And like she's telling all this in slow motion and you could almost live it with her. So even though we didn't hear from the uh, families in terms of how this impacted them, we did hear from one of the victims and how it impacted her. It was very powerful. Mm. And can you explain the reaction or describe the reaction of others in the courtroom, um, including the defense team, when she was giving such such compelling testimony? Well, you know, they watched very intently. I will tell you there was one time where uh, Jennifer Crumley broke down in tears, as well as her attorney. Uh, you could tell she was trying to stifle um, crying. But that was when they showed the video of the actual day of the shooting. And you could see the shooter um, going through the hallways. And this was only seen, by the way, by the jury. This wasn't shown. Uh, it was not broadcast, I should say. Uh, so and th she became very, very emotional. The, the judge had to call a, a timeout to call a recess because it was... You know, that that will impact a jury to see a defendant with that kind of reaction. So they had to stop proceedings in order to get everybody um, for everybody to gather their emotions. Oh, it's such it's it's so complicated. And yet at the same time, it also feels so simple. You know, the, the complicated part being this yeah. this question we've been tossing around of like responsibility and accountability and then the sim simplicity of being. Of, of just of the pain and anguish of violence and lives lost, innocent lives lost that should never have been in that position. It just, uh, it's just heartbreaking. Um, so sentencing April 9th, and then the husband is going to go on trial. Do you know whether this conviction um, will be able to be introduced at the husband's trial? Has that motion been filed yet? We we don't know that in terms of they haven't filed any motion yet, at least not that we know of right now. But here's the question for that. How will this impact his trial? I mean, people, they're going to probably ask for a change of venue for obvious reasons. But w will he be granted that? Because everyone knows now that she's been convicted of this. So will that in some way impact a potential juror that may have to sit on his uh, in his trial. Now, uh, jurors are all, always told, you may have an opinion. You may have heard about this case. You might even have an opinion about it. What we're asking you here today to do is to listen to all of the evidence that's being presented and make your judgment only on the evidence that's presented here. But 
a lot of people have questions as to whether or not a human being can actually do that and put aside their feelings about this. And interestingly, you know, oftentimes when we look at defendants who seem to be in the same boat and who are then tried separately. So oftentimes it it works in their favor. um, And oftentimes it doesn't because if, for example, her conviction is excluded and let's say the jury doesn't know about it or is prohibited from including that in their analysis, which notwithstanding your point about, of course, it would be hard right. not to. But is that people want people want to be able to find someone culpable. So if they don't know about it, then statistically, that sort of lends itself more weight to finding the husband guilty because it's you know, they, they want to have someone fa- mm-hmm. held responsible for this. Right. And then the, the second point, though, is that. Um, oftentimes, as we consider defendants in like situations, sort of identical with identical defenses, it's oftentimes not the case. And I think here we might see that. So, for example, we just talked about a case recently where uh, two parents, a mother and a father, were both accused of and prosecuted for child abuse. And one was found guilty and one was acquitted. And so here um, I know that in the data points of the case, for example, um, you know, it's alleged the father is the one that purchased the gun, but and that the mother and part of the prosecution's argument here was that she was sort of checked out, focusing on her horses. She was having an illicit affair. So the question sort of remains, like when you look at them separately, we think of them, two parents in the home, same culpability, but perhaps it will be a very different case with very different fact points involving or in allegations uh, involving the father that maybe he he truly didn't that short of purchasing the gun perhaps he had much less insight now um you know convicted uh jennifer convicted of having that insight into the son's troubles right right that that's going to be pretty tough to overcome as a juror for the james crumley trial I, i one more point about that gun too is that Uh, A juror was asked, in fact, it was the jury forewoman was asked after um, the verdict was rendered. She did agree to just momentarily speak to the media. She did not give her name. But she said that the thing that really was impactful to the jury was the video of the surveillance footage from a shooting range in November 27th, 2021. It was the day after the murder weapon was purchased and Crumley went to the range with her son and they took a couple turns and then she left carrying that case with that nine millimeter handgun inside. So in the jury's head, they always remembered she had it in her hands. She said she, uh, her husband got it out of the car and then put it in the house. But in the jury's mind, they saw her holding that gun, therefore probably being, res- in their minds, being responsible for it. Fascinating. Fascinating. Marie Osborne, you are always so incredible. Thank you so much for such incredible analysis and detail-oriented reporting. And we will be sure to check in with you again after the sentencing and when Mr. Cumbly's trial begins in March. So thank you so much as it unfolds. Very well, Emily. Have a great afternoon. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.